friendly sounds of Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass means it's time for another edition of Fangraphs Audio. Hello, I'm Carson Sestouli, host of Fangraphs Audio. Uh, today my guest on the program is Rob Nyer. Uh, Rob Nyer is famous for a dozen reasons, but most relevant this week because, of course, he left ESPN, for whom he'd written for 15 years, and has uh, just joined the SB Nation network of blogs. In what follows, I asked Nyer not only about his switch from ESPN to SB Nation, uh, but also a, a whole host of other things that may or may not be of interest to the listener, including some scattered thoughts on the art of the blog, how one might compartmentalize his life as a blogger, the works and days of Pat Oswalt, the show Portlandia, uh, NBC's Thursday Night lineup, and a number of other notable topics. Uh, without further ado, though, here is my interview with Rob Nyer. As noted, my guest is Rob Nyer. Uh, as maybe not noted, my name is Carson Sestouli, and this is Fangraphs Audio. Uh, but more importantly, uh, Rob Nyer is here. Rob, how are you doing? Uh, I'm well, thank you. Good. Hey, Rob, thanks so much for joining Fangraphs Audio. Well, I was waiting, you know, I've been waiting forever for you to, for you to invite me on, so it's, uh, it's great. I'm glad to be here. Well, you, you've actually, you, we've had you on before, Rob. Really? Oh, my God. This is so embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was you? Yeah, it was me. Yeah, it was, it was, it was oh. me. That was me. Oh, sorry. That, that, that was, you know, that was, that was great. I, <laughs> I, I forgot that it was you, but I remember that I had a really good time. I know you get a lot of media attention, Rob. Um, so you might it might have just slipped your mind, but uh, listen, Rob. Speaking of media attention, um, <clears throat> I don't know if you're aware of this. Well, in fact, I, this is a lie. I do know you're aware of this. Um, uh, as a result of your move recently to SB Nation, uh, much publicized move, uh, you were trending on Twitter. It was. No, I knew that too. Uh, it was. It was. It was an odd day. Um, and that was one of the odder things about that day. Yeah, well, that yeah, that is true. Now, listen, um, I I, I want to start off by talking about the the switch to SB Nation, which um, I'll assume that you know ninety ninety five percent of our listeners will know about. Um, now, you did a, a, an interview uh, very recently with Graham Womack of uh, Baseball Past and Present, and it's a good interview. And so, I don't want to cover. Um, you know, a lot of the things that you guys covered, but I think it obviously makes sense to, to discuss the switch to SB Nation and, um, you know, some of the things surrounding that. Uh, one of the things you, you talked about in that interview with um, with Graham is is the sort of um, opportunity that the switch um, might allow you um, to, to try out some things uh, at SB Nation that, it's not necessarily that you weren't allowed to try at ESPN, um, but for some reason there was sort of a, a block there. And in particular, I'm talking about um, addition to some longer form stuff, doing like what you call quick hits or sort of like a Uber Twitter type posts, like you know 50 to 200 words or something like that. Um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that and maybe what you feel like it was preventing you from doing that at ESPN. Well. I just didn't really, two things. One, I was just locked in, had been locked in for so long, first writing columns for many years, and then when I started blogging, I essentially just started to write more columns. 
Uh, and, you know, they were a little shorter. Sometimes I'd write a 600-word blog post as opposed to an 800,000-word column. But for the most part, I went from writing three or four columns a week to writing, I don't know, what, 15 or 20 blog posts a week, which were really columns. Um, and, you know, the only real difference was that I did a lot more quoting other pieces than I had in the columns. Well, I've done some of that, too. I mean, when, when I started blogging, there were a few complaints. All Meyer is doing is taking other people's stuff. Well, I would say 75, 80% of the writing was me, and there was a lot more of it than there had been before, so I was generating a lot more original content than I ever had as a columnist. Um, but, you know, anyway, the point is I was still basically doing uh, column-length essays, um, just more of them, and I never really felt like that space, the physical space that I was using at ESPN.com was really the place for a 200-word thing or a 100-word thing, you know, the sort of stuff that Craig Calcaterra does every day and lots of other people and the stuff that I'm now doing for SB Nation on a regular basis um, on the baseball page where it's like, you know what, all I really had here is maybe a quote and maybe a thought, maybe a punchline, maybe two thoughts, but probably not. Now I feel like I have a place for that where it just makes sense physically and it didn't before. I could have done it. Nobody would have said, hey, Rob, stop doing that at ESPN um, because you know, I had a great deal of, of, of freedom there. Um, it just never felt right. I could never get my brain around how to make that look good or be consistent with the other stuff. And now it, it's very natural to do short-form stuff and then take the long-form stuff that it goes in a different space at SB Nation. Um, and I think part of the problem is I have, to some degree, I have a very regimented mind. I like to put things in compartments and sort things and list things. And, you know, that serves me very well in many aspects of what I do. Um, you know, it's good to write about, write about baseball that, and statistics and, and, and do some analysis to be have an orderly mind, but it's also limiting sometimes, too, and I think it limited me at ESPN. You know, um, it, just discussing what we might call the blog form, um, it, it, it occurs to me that it's, you know, well, first of all, it's very clearly not going away, um, you know, and in fact, it, uh, you know, for a lot of sports writing, it's become, you know, very much uh, a, a, you know, a mainstay and maybe in some cases the dominant, um, you know, mode of, um, of writing. Um, it, it occurs to me also that there are actually kind of a lot of exciting things going on with it um, and, uh, and people who are really beginning to master the form and you know revealing that it's actually it's actually can be a pretty exciting way of writing and uh, it turns out a lot of the guys that are really good at it uh, good at it are already part of the SB Nation network I'm thinking like particularly of Jeff Sullivan or uh, uh, Will McDonald who writes over there um, you know, maybe Dan Moore. I'm curious, like, what do you think, when it's done really well, what do you think is happening with the blog form? You know, Carson, I don't even really know what blog means anymore. I mean, we can we can take all these things and say, yeah, if we could do this and this and this and this, it's a blog. What if we just do three of those four things? Is it still a blog? Well, yeah, most people would say it is. Uh, what if you do two of those? Yeah, sure, if you call it a blog, it's a blog. Um, <laughs> and I, I find that most... I find that most of the things that people are doing now, with the exception of linking, which didn't exist 20 years ago, um, have been done before. Uh, I mean, a lot of the things that are considered sort of bloggy 
I was doing 15 years ago to ESPN, and, and we just didn't have the word to call it that. So um, I think really what it comes down to is that good writing is good writing, and, 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 and whether we call it a blog or a column or whatever else, whatever other words we come up with, it's like the, the, the best blogs that I've read lately were, and I on SB Nation in particular, because I've been doing a lot more sort of SB Nation surfing than I, than I had before, and we have some fantastic, well, I don't even want to name anybody because they can get me in trouble. But, yeah, we'll get you in uh, trouble, yes, yeah. We all, everybody knows who they are for the most part, the, 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 really the, the best of, of, of the blogs. Um, not hard to figure out. And I don't read them and think, ooh, this is a good blog. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. You think this is really good writing, and it would have been just as good if it had been written on paper um, in a newspaper uh, column 50 years ago. It doesn't matter. I mean, sure, the attitude might be a little different, but good writing is good writing. You know, H.L. Lincoln was, was funny 100 years ago whenever he wrote. Um, Mark Twain was funny more than 100 years ago, and they would be funny today. It doesn't, it, I just don't see the, I don't see any, any distinction between the two. Well, here, here, I'll, I'll provide two things which I think that it seems, th- you're right, these are things that are native to good writers, but maybe what the form itself allows for, both uh, because of the fact that one is allowed to publish immediately, and furthermore, because there is, and, and you, you published this, or you know, you, dis- you discussed this in your introduction, um, at SB Nation, which is the sort of us versus them paradigm doesn't really exist for for you because you consider yourself, I guess in this in the, in that in that case one of them right, which is one of the readers. You sort of more identify uh, with that. But here are two things. One is I would suggest that um, there's not only an acceptance of of brevity in some cases with with what we might call blog posts or you know with electronic writing, but also like uh, there are certain people who seem to master it and do it particularly well, a sort of brevity that would not necessarily have been allowed um, in newspaper writing, for example. And second of all, I'll suggest that a that like whimsy, a, a sort of whimsical sort of post can be given space. Like, And I'm thinking of two great things in particular. Um, one is the, something that Will McDonald did uh, right after Carl Crawford signed, um, where, he, where he discussed at length uh, Carl Crawford desire to start an antiquarian bookshop now that he um, had been traded to Boston or signed by Boston and another one that was uh, came out a while ago but it was by Derek Zumsteg uh, at USS Mariner he did like a like a really lengthy and kind of like uh, in-depth um, uh, sort of look at Bugs Bunny in that famous uh, cartoon where he's playing the, uh, all those big guys and that actually ended up in best American baseball writing I think it was the first thing that was directly Printed or published on uh, in electronic form, um, but those are two things I would suggest: is that there's sort of not only a tolerance for, but in, uh, now that we see mastery of brevity, and then also a sort of uh, proclivity for whimsy, or, or something about um, the, the the electronic medium w- that allows whimsical writing. Well, Re- respond. To well, that. <laughs> yes, but and I'll throw into uh, the incredible work that that. Uh, Larry Granillo, Granillo does over at Wiesenball. Um, fantastic stuff and very whimsical often. I uh, did a whole big thing on Charlie Brown last year. I mean, it's just great stuff. And, and there, you're, you're right. But here's, here's what I would say. And I'm not, I am not an historian of, of journalism. What I think that 
we're seeing now is not dissimilar to what you might have seen in newspapers a hundred years ago um, or, or even less. Uh, when there were more newspapers, there was more room for other sorts of things. You mentioned the brevity um, and the really quick stuff. Well, there used to be newspaper columnists whose stock in trade was like one-liners, you know, a column full of, of jokes, dot, 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 here's another joke, here's another little observation. Um, but I, I think that as newspapers consolidated, and a lot of them went away, and, you know, people think now, well, the newspapers are dying. Well, there was a huge consolidation of newspapers in the, in the 40s and 50s. Um, so this has happened before. And the fewer outlets you have, the less chances there are for some, you know, somebody doing something offbeat to come in and get a shot. Well, the Internet sort of replicates, I think, the early days of the big newspapers, where um, there are so many opportunities that there's that you can find a space. If you've got a voice, you can find a space to do something different. Uh, so to me, it isn't really about the Internet so much as about the newness, the relative newness of it. I mean, the Internet has now been around for a long time, and uh, but it really had to be around for a while to take hold. You've got guys who do really good, good stuff now who sort of grew up with the form, grew up with the Internet, and, and they, there were no limitations. You know, if you're eight years old and the web's already out there and you see... The, People are doing all this crazy stuff. You think, hey, I can do crazy stuff too. And in ten or fifteen or twenty years, I'll be really good at it. And I think that's what's happened. Um, I want to ask you. Uh, uh, we mentioned this briefly, and you you posted this. Uh, you made a post to this effect recently at uh, your your space at SB Nation. Uh, I think it was maybe three four years ago. Now Jeff Sullivan at Lookout Landing um, wrote something to the effect that you. I, I don't know what you probably know the exact words, but that you had lost it, uh, that you were a crazy person. Uh, it, it was something to that effect, um, because you had suggested that Michael Young was the best player in the AL West at the time, uh, and Jeff Sullivan retorted in, um, you know, what 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 could uh, possibly be uh, considered uh, a brusque fashion uh, that you know that you, that you had no idea what you're talking about. Um, now, obviously, uh, you, know, you posting that and Jeff Sullivan sort of—I think he might have, uh, you know, made a couple comments in the in the comment thread of your post, um, to ma- making it clear like this is this is not an issue, right? And in fact, uh, something that kind of became a joke. I'm wondering what it is. Is it is it because of the form, or is it because, um, you, you know, you and Jeff are like both pretty good guys? That this becomes a non-issue, or is it because we're like because we expect that sort of discourse to occur, um, you know, um, I don't know, electronic media or just in sort of uh, media in general, we, we would expect a sort of a brusque uh, rebuttal of that of that sort. Why why is it becoming an issue? That sort of thing. Why is it why is it not an issue? Why is it not an issue? Why is it even a funny thing that you guys are able to slap each other's backs over? Well, first of all, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, <laughs> I think, I mean, look, when, when Jeff wrote that, um, he very specifically wrote that I had, not only had I lost it, but that I had been irrelevant for many years. Um, and this was, as you said, four years ago. Um, so it's, you know, and I think he, I think he meant what he wrote. Uh, does he still feel that way? I don't know. Um, I hope not. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if he does, we'll just have to figure out what he gets through it because he and I are now working together very closely. Do you mean like um, when you say get through it? Do you mean like assassinate him? 
Well, if that's what it takes. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it myself, but I know people. No, sure. Um, I, yeah. I know you know yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't get my hands dirty. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, I think for, on a personal level, it's just something that we're, we're fine with. Um, and, uh, and, and I hope now that Jeff knows me better and, um, maybe he thinks I'm not completely irrelevant. But look, when you're, I think you wrote that when you was 21. When you're 21, you're supposed to write stuff like that about old guys. I was, I'm 20 years older than Jeff, almost. Um, that's what you're supposed to do. I told him that. I said, you know, you're supposed to sort of do your oats and make cash out of the old guys. And, I, and, and that's fine. I, I do the same sort of stuff when I was young, older than him. When I was in my 30s, I was writing nasty things about, about my elders. So, um, I don't have a problem with it. Um, on a, on a general level, I, I, I I would uh, recommend to all young writers to, to sort of break break free of the bonds and uh, don't have too much respect for 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 older writers. Um, that's what you're supposed to do. You, you know, the, um, I'm sort of curious about the the outsider nature of you know, and, and of course this, this is a this is a dialectic you you suggested, which was the the, the us versus them um, scenario, which might occur between writers and and readers, or you know. Fans at home. Um, I, I'm curious because the New York Mets uh, recently, uh, led by Sandy Alderson, um, invited a bunch of uh, a number of um, Mets-oriented bloggers uh, to a conference call. Um, you know, with um, and there were some suggestions that uh, you know because it's clear that uh, you know electronic media is important and that it, it uh, has a lot of readers. And it, you know, has also, um, I think, you know, as we've noted, a number of qualified writers um, that they might be given more access um, to the Mets and you know the players front office. Uh, I believe uh, James Kennegeiser at Amazing App was discussing this, and um, and he, we actually had him on the podcast, and we were talking about it a little bit. Um, but this isn't totally uh, dissociated from the point we're making about Sullivan, right? Which is um, the more the, the more responsibility you have. So in the case like of the, the Mets bloggers, the more um, I guess the closer your relationship is with the team. Or in the case of Jeff, like the more he realizes that like his words will have weight or you know are actually affecting people, there's a possibility it could change your tone. I'm curious, you know, as blog bloggers do get more access to, or you know, just like people writing exclusively for electronic media. Do get more access to to clubs and sort of more of the old guard of baseball writers. Do you think that will have an effect on the writing? Oh sure, it can't help but have some effect, some impact. Um, I'm not too worried about it though. I mean, it isn't like newspaper columnists all cats out of the clubs because they get to sit in the press box. Uh, they don't. A lot, some of them do, but a lot of them don't um, because they know what got them there. They don't really feel the pressure. Because they know they're not going to get kicked out. Now it's a little bit different with bloggers because it's much easier to pull a blogger's credential if he has one uh, or she than it is to pull the credentials of uh, you know a member of the BBWA. In fact, you can't do that. So it, it may make a difference. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think it'll make much difference. There, sure, there'll be some bloggers who are sort of starstruck, like, oh wow, they let me in a little bit. I I can't write anything nasty about them. I don't think that. Because that isn't why most bloggers get into it. They get into it because they love the team. They love writing about the team. They love being as honest as they can be about the team. Um, and they're not really going to change much. In fact, I know some bloggers who aren't even really interested in getting credentialed 
for being in the press box because they say, well, what am I going to do up there? Well, you know, yeah, unless, they have, unless they have uh, an ambition to uh, interview the players for, for some stories, it's not really all that, that, that useful to, to get media credentials or even necessarily to talk to the GM. Um, and if we have a situation where, let's say, the, best, the three best mess blogs, whichever, whatever they are, I, I know Amazing Adam is one of them, and Nest Blog is another great one, and there are others. Um, the, the three best Mets blogs all get you know, subsumed into uh, Mets corporate culture thanks to uh, Sandy Alderson's charm. Well, you know what's going to happen? Three more Mets blogs are going to spring up to take the place and write objectively about the club. So uh, I really don't think it's going to be an issue. If you're a fan, if you're a fan, you're always going to be able to find some, some straight-shooting bloggers about your team. I, w- I want to talk. Uh, I want to ask you about um, uh, use of time. Uh, I- I've sort of noticed, uh, and of course, my experiences, um, you know, are-, are limited in this capacity. But, uh, for example, having started the the, um, the Knockrafts site, uh, sort of the enthusiastic younger brother of Fangraphs, um, <laughs> it's uh, uh, it's hard for me to tell now. Uh, like how many hours I work a day because it's like either you know maybe zero or two hours a day of real work or it's or alternatively it's like 16 because kind of everything I'm doing all the time sort of relates to it and uh, and it does seem to me the case especially when you're doing like the shorter punchier things uh, which are just sort of reactions like there is a sort of intimacy there that uh, that a column Will lack because the column is a little bit more dedicated to you know to reason and outlining an argument. Um, I'm curious as to, to to how you delineate between because you said that carbo, uh, you know compartmentalizing is kind of important to you. Um, are, are there times where you're off the clock or and if so, like how do you how do you distinguish that? I mean, is it a question of closing your computer? Is it you, you know getting away from the house? When are you writing and when are you not? Uh, well, I would say that basically I'm always on the clock in my mind when I'm when I'm home. Um, I don't I don't spend I don't spend much time in any room in my house except my office. Uh, I have a TV in there, of course, and I have two machines, two computers, um, and uh, that's where I am when I'm home. Now, when I'm not home, I'm off. I don't, you know, I know I, I don't uh, sit around in coffee shops with my phone. Taking away, not very often anyway. Um, I go to the movie or I go out bird watching or I do whatever. Um, I'm going to see Patton Oswalt tonight. Uh, and when I do that, I'm off. You know, and I, and I lose myself. I, I don't know if it's because I'm good at compartmentalizing or not, but, um, uh, when I'm working, I'm immersed in that. And when I'm, which is a lot of the time. And when I'm not, I don't even really think about it. I could sit, sit in a movie for two hours and, and, uh, not a single thought of baseball will cross my mind. Yeah, but so this is the thing, though, is because uh, because you do most of your work from home. I mean, is it a sense like anytime you're home, you're working? Yeah, but I don't. It doesn't bother me. I mean, um, I, I wake up in the morning, and the first thing I do is turn the computer on. Well, let me think. Yeah, first thing I turn the computer on, then the hot water, and uh, then I go to the bathroom. I think that's third. So this is pretty intimate. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? And then back to the, and then back to the, and then back to the hot water for my tea. Yeah. And then by the time I get into my office, the uh, 
computer's all warmed up, I'm ready to go. Yeah, so, you, so you're already working. I, I mean, I get. Yeah. I, mean, I guess my point is that some people, well, and maybe this is a dumb point I'm making. In fact, it probably is. But some people would like to be at their homes without feeling like they're working. But I guess what you're suggesting is, you know, I mean, if you enjoy your work, I guess it's not really a problem. Right, and if I had something else to do here, I would do that, and it would be fine. Okay. Um, I, I, it isn't like I'm locked in. It's just that I don't really have anything else. When I'm home, I don't really have much else to do. I should read. Um, uh, should read more, but um, but this is what I, this is sort of what I do here, and then I go other places to do other things. Okay, I'm I'm not angry at you, Nair. It's it sounds like you think. I, <laughs> um, All these questions. Well, yeah, that, that's oh, the nature. Is, of oh, the, yeah. Interview, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, let's de- let's depart briefly. Uh, let's compartmentalize. Nair. let's depart from uh, baseball talk, uh, at least momentarily. I want to ask you about uh, Pat Oswalt. He's in Portland tonight. What's your attraction? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't have one, uh, but what, what's the attraction to Pat Oswalt? What are you hoping to see? What do you think you'll see? I oh, I just think he's incredibly funny. I mean, I, I, I'm not. I don't have vocabulary to describe what about his comedy I find uh, so attractive. Uh, but uh, uh, I just do. Everything I've ever seen him in. Um, and he's also, this is something a lot of people don't know. Most people maybe have heard of Patton Oswalt. He's most famous, if you can be famous for, for a cartoon, he, he's most famous for being the, the lead in Ratatouille, the Pixar movie, which is one of my favorite movies. Um, and I'm a huge Pixar nut. And he was great in it. He was also great in a movie called Big Fan that, that nobody really saw. Very limited release. Um, I don't know, probably didn't make two million bucks in the theaters, but it's a really good movie. It's the best thing I've ever seen about being a sports fan. And he's really good in it. I mean, really good. Um, that is why you go see a comedy show, obviously. His stand-up, I've seen some of his stand-up. Um, he did a show called, uh, oh, what was it called? It was with Maria Bamford and Zach Galifianakis on, uh, Comedy Central would just, just basically followed them around on, on a comedy tour, and there were little bits of stand-up interspersed throughout, and and uh, he just he's just great. Um, so I, I mean I, I'm gonna really love it. I, I, that's why I'm going. Are you uh, are you are you a fan of the stand-up generally? Uh, well, like everybody else, I like I like com- comedy. Um, I like comics. This will be my third stand-up live show ever, so. I, think I really can't describe myself as a big fan of stand-up comedy because if I was, I would have gone to more more clubs over the years. Yeah, you you would have if you really liked it. Exactly. Hey, so uh, I, I uh, slightly related. I'm so lame. <laughs> uh, slightly related thing. I don't think uh, has Portlandia had an episode yet. Uh, the, the series that's forthcoming, or maybe has been uh, broadcast. On? Yes, you've missed you you missed two episodes so far. Are you joking? They've already had two episodes. Yes. Oh well, did you watch them? I did. Okay. Now you live in Portland, so this is uh, I do. shockingly appropriate. Um, uh, I mean, I guess there are a number of things to talk about, but is it? I mean, first of all, have you enjoyed the episodes? I have. Yeah. Sure. Okay. And second of all, do you do you feel like you've enjoyed them because they they sort of uh, uh, I guess uh, poke fun at or somehow identify things that. Uh, you've noticed about Portland, or is it is it sort of separate from that? Well, it's, there's a little bit of that. I mean, I'm not one of those guys. You know, some people 
uh, this makes it a little crazy. You know, you're watching a movie and and uh, somebody misses the name of your hometown and and, the, and people go, ooh, you know, really excited. <laughs> I'm not really one of those guys. You yeah. know, I I I get that Kansas City is out there and sometimes comes up in movies. I don't have this little explosion of joy every time it's mentioned. Um, so just the fact that it's set in Portland doesn't really do that much for me. There are some things that maybe resonate a little more. It's certainly fun. It's all shot here. And so it's fun to see all these places that I've been. Um, you know, that's a kick. Um, I think as a sketch comedy show, it it would work regardless. I would like it even if it were set in, I don't know, Atlanta or, or, or wherever. Maybe it makes a little more sense for me. Um, but the, really, the only thing that really says has said Portland, like in big bright lights to me in the two episodes was this song at the very beginning of the first episode sort of set the tone um, and that's on YouTube and it's really good that really if you want to know what Portland's really about you can just watch that three minute song is that the dream of the 90s is alive in Portland dream of, dream of the 90s yeah <laughs> have you seen that uh, I well um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Sounds of Young America uh, hosted by Jesse Thorne yeah, uh, I haven't heard it, but I know I know of it. Yeah, uh, well, in fact, one thing Jesse Thorne was kind enough to be a guest on Fangraphs Audio because we get big names here. Is the first point. Wow. Uh, second point is he did an interview recently with uh, Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein, I believe is her name, and yep. uh, they uh, he, he played a clip from uh, from the Dream of of the nineties. Um, but yeah, uh, it, it. Well, do you Carson? Carson, do you have the YouTube where you live? Uh, in Wisconsin? I don't know. Um, I'll have to look it up on the, uh, whatever my YouTube machine. <laughs> see if yeah, check, check your YouTube machine. I think <laughs> that you might find it there. I'm going to do that. Uh, I'm going to do that. Yeah, I, I, I did sense that though. Uh, there was also a scene, I believe, in, um, I don't know if I saw the clip of or, or heard it. There was one though in which, uh, uh, the, the two of them, I believe, were ordering food at a restaurant. And uh, they had, they were one of them was ordering chicken, and uh, there was sort of some to do about um, getting to know the chicken, where where it had grown up, and what its name was, and you know when if it had lived a happy life. Um, yes, and if whether it had whether the chicken had friends and what its name was, and it was, yeah. that was funny. Yeah, right. Um, I assume that was I funny. Know, I, I don't know that it's unique to Portland, but they, they it was good. And Jeff Sullivan pointed out to me. They sort of killed the joke because they took it way too far and did this whole other thing. But um, yeah, that was that was a good bit. There's a lot of good bits. Yeah, well, it, it is a unique place to live, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, and you may not care to hear this, but reflecting back on it, I, I realized that um, I don't like Portland. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like Portland, and, and uh, I know you do. And it's not that I didn't. It's not that I regret at all uh, having having lived there, um, you know. But uh, I don't know, it's just frustrating. For example, do you know Nair? Do you know you know the Packers and the Super Bowl? Do you know how happy people are here because of that? People people walk around here just literally with smiles on their faces uh, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and well, people, you live in Wisconsin. What did that do with Oregon? No, my point is though that that I mean, as a sports fan in particular. It, you know, it resonates with me the fact that that people could have this experience. Like you, you think if the I mean, see, this is the thing. Like you think if the Seattle Seahawks had made it through, you know, to the to the Super Bowl, that people in Portland would be walking around with smiles on their face. Well, 
I would suggest that not many of them would be, but uh, when the Portland Trailblazers are doing well, there are a lot of smiling Portlanders, and Wisconsin is like off the charts for that kind of thing, where everybody loves the team. I mean, I don't think you're going to find that many other places. So if that's what you're looking for, it's happy faces when the team wins, you pick the right spot. Good job. Congrats on your wife. She's the one who picked it. I congratulate her all the time for marrying me. Yeah, well, well done. <laughs> um, uh, listen, I, uh, well, we're, I'm going to keep you around for a little bit longer, not too much longer, because I know you got you got places to be as a VIP per, type of person. Um, uh, stories, though, I want to talk more about stories, uh, especially Thursday night stories. Um, this has been a, this has been a topic of conversation for us for a little bit now, uh, and actually, this is appropriate because we're we're, we're talking on uh, Friday. Uh, you know, Friday early, early-ish. Um, I mean, what are your? How do you rank them right now, Naira? Your, your Thursday night stories. Boy, that's a tough one. Um, I, uh, uh, oh man, I love all four of them for different reasons. Uh, well, in fact, I, there are five you know, of them now, or or six, sort of. Do you see? You know what? I haven't seen the new one, Perfect Couples. Um, haven't watched it. I'm probably one of the few people you know who sort of enjoys outsourced a little, you know, enough to watch it. I think, um, yeah, I, I have a feeling as to why you might like outsourced. I have a hunch. That's a very small part of it, <laughs> uh, and getting smaller by the by, by the hour. Yeah, I think it's okay. I, okay. I, I don't love it, but. There's something sweet about that show that that I kind of like. Okay. Um, but no, the other four are often their, their own their own their own stratosphere, um, and I've gone back and forth and uh, trying to figure out you know because we, we you and I talk about this all the time. What's your favorite? Well, they're they're so different at this point um, that uh, and I love them all. They're, they're all like ten, but in different categories. So I really uh, can't choose. I do love the community, which I know you love. I love it. Um, yeah. Did it, you see the Did you see the D and D episode last night? I did. I did, and that show is goes often in such bizarre directions and tells these weird stories. And what that means is that it often isn't as funny as the other shows, but it's certainly more daring and and and, and more interesting to watch. And and I give it huge credit for that and it's also incredibly funny don't get me wrong but um, it doesn't deliver laugh 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 all the time like 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 the other ones do it, it's just it's just it's 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 doing its own thing and I, and I really admire that yeah well I, I I will say that too I, I think it is one of the more daring shows and I, and I don't necessarily view it um, and th- this I don't know if this is a what is it a distinction without a difference or a difference without a distinction I think it's daring, but it does not always necessarily seem to me to be daring uh, for the sake of being daring. Like it seems like I just get the sense intuitively that the writers are generally interested in, um, are amused by by challenging themselves in these ways. There seems to be like a real sense of uh, of joy about it, which I I tend to appreciate. Um, and uh, whereas you know, um, I mean, The Office though, I know I know that. Uh, you know, maybe because you're you're good friends with uh, Michael Schur, and you know can often be seen 
uh, you know, at, at uh, the West Coast's more expensive restaurants, you know, dining beside him, <laughs> that you'd care not to uh, to criticize that show. But there is uh, there is something to be said, I guess, for um, well, there's a tension, right, between the between the the commercial success of a show and then like kind of um, you, you know what what might be best for it, uh, you know, artistically. Um, and the well, office has occasionally uh, has occasionally you know because of its success maybe falter because of it. I think that I don't know if they falter because of the success. I think that that might be true. Uh, I just think that that sitcoms anyway. I think that they tend to have they tend to sort of peak in year two or three, somewhere around there because it takes the first year to sort of figure out who all the characters are and what where they're going and how to write for them. And then there's this sort of real burst of energy when everybody figures out, oh, this is what we do. And, you know, all the great writers are still there, year two and three. Um, everybody's invested in, you know, the characters and nobody's that awesome movies and that stuff. And I think that's typically when you have your best years in a sitcom. And then after that, typically, not always, but typically there's sort of a so slow slide down, or sometimes fast if you jump the shark at some point. But um, I think the opposite at its peak in seasons two, three, maybe four, was as as good as anything that I've ever seen. Um, I don't think that they're at that level right now, but I still think it's a great show. Um, I still, you know, can't wait to see it every week. So, you know, going from a, a ten to a nine, um, I don't have an issue with that. And I I'm I have no idea what they're going to do when Steve Carell leaves, but uh, I'm going to be I'm going to I'm going to find out. Yeah, you are probably before all of us <laughs> because of your high powered connections. Well, uh, first of all, uh, I do know Mike Sure a little bit, but we're not, we have not had a meal yet. He, he was, as you know, uh, very kind and invited me to visit the set of The Office a few years ago. And it was, you know, I think about the, all the great things that have happened in my career, and most people would probably think, oh, it's, uh, you know, we go to the World Series or the All-Star Game or interviewing this guy or that guy. And I've done a little bit of those things, and, 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 and I enjoyed them, but, it's really sort of the other stuff, you know, getting to visit the set of the office, um, getting to interview Jerry Mathers, who you probably never heard of, but um, no, that, that sounds familiar. I, I believe he was the Beef. That's right. Well you know, done. For yeah. it. I'm, I'm impressed. Well, wasn't didn't he? Uh, wasn't there a Jerry Mathers night at uh, at uh, the the ballpark in Portland? Yeah, yeah that's why I interviewed him. We were we were uh, I was working on the radio with Rich Burke. The, the, the voice of the Beavers, and uh, we had uh, Jerry Mathers on the air in you know sixth inning or something, and and I asked Rich earlier, hey, you know when 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 Jerry comes on, you mind if I if I take over first? You ask me a few questions. And Rich said, sure, go ahead. So I mean, I I grew up watching the Beave and was sort of obsessed with that show when I was a kid, because um, and uh, then you get to sit next to him and ask him about his career was. Uh, I mean, it, it, I don't sound weird, but that was one of the five high points of my of my whole career, quote unquote. Do, uh, I mean, do, that's one of those situations, though, right? Like, and you see this too, where where you're meeting. Um, okay, so I had an, a friend of mine had an experience where he went to a dinner to which Arthur Miller, the playwright, was also invited. Yeah, and and he was kind of trying to describe to me. It's like he never really thought of Arthur Miller as a real person, right? Because it's like you read his plays in high school, 
Um, and he's just like a he's like a part of the fabric of the culture in which you live. And it, I mean, is that sort of the experience you had? It's like Jerry Mathers isn't a real person. He's like a he, he's part of another world. And then to sit next to him, I imagine, would provide that sort of sort of experience. Weird sort of experience. Well, I mean, I, I think sort of there's two different worlds. There's the world of television and uh, Beaver Cleaver, uh, and I just I don't know. I, I I was perfectly comfortable talking to him. I didn't feel like, oh my god, what am I going to do? You know, I, I've met not all that many famous people over the years, um, but as a result of my my job, I've met enough where it doesn't sort of blow me away. Although it's it sort of depends on the situation. I mean, I met an I met a uh, a, a novelist recently, really down to earth guy named John Von Lethem, who's written um, sure. his big book. Uh, anyway. I, I think did, did, uh, I believe he well didn't he write Motherless Brooklyn? Or am I thinking? Yeah, of... but that isn't. No, he wrote that, um, and he wrote that most recent was called Chronic City, and he wrote another one that was a huge bestseller, the name of which I'm forgetting at the moment, uh, unaccountably. But uh, I met him at a book signing, and I was I was starstruck, much more than I had been with Jerry Mathers or any baseball player over the years, and I, I don't know what I think it's because novelists more than anything else, what novelists do. The good, the really good ones. It it seems sort of magical to me, um, and it's almost as if I'm in the presence of some supernatural creature, and I just, you know, I'm sort of struck dumb uh, by that. Which isn't to say that if we actually sat down someplace at a bar over beers, I couldn't, it wouldn't be fine. But in that setting, the book signing, walking through a line, wanting to say something that wasn't asinine, um, <laughs> I, I and I failed, of course. Um, it turns out he's a big baseball fan too. I, I found out later that uh, John Valentin wrote, I think, two or three years ago. He co-authored a book about following the Mets for a season under a pseudonym, um, and I've only read a little bit of it. And it's good, but um, um, I was just—I I, I felt like a jerk because I hadn't done enough research, like you know, the really hard stuff, look, looking up on Wikipedia to find out that he written this book. Because then I would have had to say, "Hey." I really enjoyed your Mets book, and maybe that would have uh, seemed less asinine than whatever I came up with. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, uh, uh, I, I guess good luck on that in the future. Try maybe prepare statements. Uh, s- s- Before you and I meet again, I'm going to study up. Do it, um, Nair. I'm going to uh, I'm going to dismiss you now uh, because I know that you have uh, again very important places to be. Uh, right. But I do want to uh, thank you from the bottom of my heart, um, and uh, and probably from the bottom of the our listeners' hearts too, uh, for for joining us um, on Fangraphs Audio. It's uh, I I hope you will you know the first time this this time was great the first time yeah but uh, I think I can do a lot better the second time you have me on it so I hope I get another shot at it yeah yeah well I mean that is true like maybe you'll remember being on the program this time we'll see I was. Yeah. Okay. Me. All right. Uh, so that has been Rob Nyer. I have been and will continue to be Carson Stooley. And this has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.